Welcome to the War in Ukraine Update from Kyiv podcast. I'm Jessica Ganawa, a lecturer in international relations at Flinders University in Australia, and I'm talking today with Yanis Kluger. Yanis is a senior associate at the SWP German Institute for International and Security Affairs. Yanis focuses in his work on economic development and trade in Eastern Europe and Eurasia, with a particular focus on Russian economy and domestic politics. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today, Yanis. Hi, thank you very much for having me. So we've seen since Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine on the 24th of February this year, a raft of sanctions have been imposed on Russia that have been called unprecedented in scope and breadth. The impact of those sanctions on Russia's economy is still somewhat unclear. So what do we know to be, broadly speaking, the impact of those sanctions on Russia's economy so far? And how can we expect that to evolve? Yes, thank you very much. A great question. There was really a lot of uncertainty about how exactly the sanctions would play out and what the effects would be. Earlier in March, in the initial weeks after the sanctions were imposed, we had estimates ranging from 3% GDP decline up to 20% this year. We have a much clearer picture now, and um, it will be at the lower end of these estimates, and I will explain why in a second. But um, I would like to also emphasize that the assessment of sanctions effects is a very politicized science, so to say. So we have, of course, on the Russian side, let's say, propagandistic take on the effects of sanctions. And we see Putin, of course, insisting that they are benign, but this is just, I mean, we cannot take this seriously, obviously. We cannot take this at face value. But to some degree, we have something similar sometimes in the West because we like to read studies and we like to look at facts that indicate that the sanctions are devastating, overwhelmingly, basically destroying the Russian economy. And this is also sometimes going a bit far. It's important to say that we still have pretty reliable statistics out of Russia. Of course, the quality has declined a little bit. We don't have direct data, for example, on Russian trade out of Russia, but we can reconstruct it by looking at Russia's trade partners. There's also some other information we don't have directly anymore, like, for example, Russia's budgetary spending on a monthly basis, but we have it on an annual basis and we can reconstruct a lot. So we we basically still have a very good picture. And we also have still um, high quality analysis coming out of Russia itself, because there are some institutions which are doing good work. And even if Putin claims that the sanctions are not working at all, of course, it is also important for the Russian government to really understand what is going on in the economy. So we have basically a good empirical basis on which we can judge. So what we saw um, after the sanctions were imposed is that we had a a very deep drop initially, especially in April, in economic activity, which afterwards sort of slowed. And over the summer, we had a slight pause, even some recovery in some parts of, of Russia's economy. Now, if we look at the level of Russia's output in February and compare that with the level of Russia's output in the summer, it is about a 6% drop. So it's very severe recession. If this happened to any Western economy, this would be a huge crisis and it would be a huge discussion about this. and Everybody would be going mad because it's so severe. But in Russia, of course, this kind of discourse is impossible. Uh, But it is very severe. 
And also, you know, what we saw throughout the years that the, the effect of sanctions is, is slower than originally thought, but that doesn't mean that it is necessarily more benign. We saw the forecast for next year getting worse and worse, but the forecast for this year was actually getting better and better. And this shows you that it's a protracted crisis. It's not one hit and afterwards a recovery. But if we look at the year of 2022, we have to consider that there's also some good months still in there. There's January and February, which have been excellent. And afterwards, we also had a gradual decline. And you know, if you take all of these months together and compare it with 2021, which is what you do when you want to find out 2022 growth, the difference will not be as great. So we will see that Russia's economy will shrink by about 3 or 4% this year. As I said, it's, it's very much at the low end of expectations. But this is because it's an annual figure. If you look from February until December, it will be much more. I expect something around 10% decline in activity in monthly GDP. This is a bit hidden in the annual figure, but the annual figure will, I think, disappoint many. Mm -hmm. That's significant though, 10% decline. And as you said, in some ways with sanctions, it's often not as quick and decisive as maybe we would like if we're trying to shift a state's policy or behavior within a short period of time. But the effects of those sanctions are going to continue over the years to come as long as they're still in place. If we look more specifically at a key export for Russia, so energy exports, gas and oil, since Russia's full-scale invasion, EU countries have drastically reduced their energy imports from Russia. How significant is this for Russia's economy? So you know, looking at the two factors in trade, import and export, Right now, the bigger issue for Russia is the lack of imports, so that Russia is unable to access certain components, machinery, technology. This has a much larger effect on the Russian economy at this point than restrictions on Russia's exports. Um, if we look at Russia's exports, actually, there's not that many restrictions in place so far, at least not very many, which have very huge impact. We have, for example, an embargo on coal from the European Union. We have an embargo on different kinds of steel and timber, gold, but all of these are relatively small parts of Russia's exports compared to oil and gas. Now, with regards to oil at this point, uh, we don't have an embargo yet. This is coming on 5th of December for crude oil and on 5th of February for oil products from the EU. And this is um, the most significant export restriction so far on Russia from any country. Others like the UK, US have also sanctioned uh, imports of energy, but they were not you know, big customers of Russia. The EU is the key customer of Russian energy. Still, this is not going to have a near-term devastating impact. The problem is that um, Russia is very difficult to sanction. It's especially difficult to bankrupt from the outside because Russia is such a big player on international oil markets. It's impossible to push Russia out of the oil market, you know, in a matter of a few months. There would you know, need to be alternative supply. It would have to grow over time to replace the Russian supply. And this, you know, is not, cannot be done so fast. And if we uh, now sanction all of Russian oil exports, for example, in an Iran-style embargo, this would completely destroy the world markets and we would have an extremely high oil price. This is not feasible. So we have to live with the fact that Russia will continue exporting oil. And this also means that Russia will continue to have 
very large foreign exchange revenues, dollars and euros. Because we're also at the same time sanctioning Russian imports, Russia doesn't have so many, it's harder to find stuff to spend these dollars and euros on for Russia. So if we speak about export restrictions, this is also, it's a long game. Over the long term, we want to push Russia into a situation where it does not have enough foreign currency also to pay for, for imports. But we are quite far away from this at, at this point, and we're just starting to do it. With regards to gas, there was no formal embargo from the EU to the opposite. Actually, there were specific exceptions in place in the sanctions regime to allow for the continued imports of Russian gas because it is even more difficult to replace for the EU, especially for Germany. But Russia itself has stopped exporting gas to the EU except to Hungary. So this also tells you this is not such a huge problem for Russia, at least in the near term, because it has so much revenue still from oil. And because, as I said, the, the, the key problem at the moment is finding suppliers and not paying for, for supplies. So this is why Russia was able to use its gas weapon against the EU, although it is, of course, losing its most important gas market basically permanently. And yeah, I think that over time we will get to a situation where Russia's exports of oil will also diminish, you know, gradually, and we will get to a situation where the ruble will weaken because of this and where this will, you know, cause problems for Russia. But this is not a scenario in the near term. If we look at this year, Russia actually has a very big trade surplus. So it's, it's exporting much, much more than it's importing, which is also due to the very high energy prices. Mm -hmm. And if we focus more specifically on Germany, so if I understand you correctly, Germany has already ceased gas imports from Russia. How realistic is it for Germany to replace those gas imports and how hard will that be in the coming winter? And how easy is it for Germany to replace the oil imports from Russia at the same time? Right now, Germany is not importing Russian gas anymore. The sort of the decoupling of the gas relations already happened. I think that even before the current events, the destruction of uh, three or four Nord Stream pipelines, the pipelines are basically dead. There was no perspective of Russian gas exports to Germany resuming anytime soon. It was not mm -hmm. a German decision, but Russia has taken the step for us already. Now the question for Germany with regards to gas is, of course, how to deal with it. And there are a number of different answers to this problem. And we have to differentiate between the short term and maybe medium term and long term. Because in the short term, if you speak about this winter, we might have a physical supply shortage. This would be a problem and it would make it necessary to ration gas and to sort of take it away from some industrial customers, you know, companies who use it, industry, and give it to uh, the population because Germany is very much dependent on gas for heating. So if the winter becomes really cold, this might be necessary because we simply do not have the infrastructure to get gas at any price from the outside. So we will just have too little. This is for this winter. But actually, Germany was very active from the start, uh, building new alternative infrastructure. And we have two new LNG terminals being finished in the next months, and they will be already operating this winter so they can help avoiding such a shortage by making it possible to import more LNG. And we will have um, a total of five to six new LNG terminals over the next two years. So the import capacity to replace most of the Russian gas will be there. 
then of course the question for for next year where do we get all of this lng from because the lng market is also not endless and a lot of lng is tied up in contracts and basically russian gas exports to the eu were about 150 billion cubic meters per year and this is about a fifth of the global lng market so we cannot we have to compete with other customers and lng prices are going to be high uh, so we have to pay a lot for gas to attract all of these LNG shipments to Germany or to the EU. So this means that for the German population, but also for industry, gas prices and energy prices overall, because gas is also used for making electricity, will remain high also next year. And next winter will also be difficult, um, not so much because we will face a shortage, but because we will face very high prices. Only in 2025, uh, is there new LNG supply coming online that will mitigate some of these problems? So it is a problem and it depends very much on basically on two things. One is the demand reaction. How much is demand shrinking because of these high prices? Uh, the numbers here are actually very good. Uh, industry is using 25% less gas right now. And the population is also using less than it did before. So we are conserving. And the second very important variable is the weather. We cannot control it. So we have just have to hope for a very mild winter. Um, I think we can also deal with a normal winter, but if we have a very harsh winter, then there might be rationing and this would affect German GDP pretty significantly. So this is the situation with regards to gas. Uh, with regards to oil, it is not that easy for Germany uh, because we have some big refineries which were built together with a huge pipeline coming from Russia. So it's basically infrastructure that goes back to the Soviet Union. And there is not enough infrastructure from ports to you know, deliver oil, crude oil to these refineries um, from other sources. But over the last months, um, the German government has also found a solution for some of that. We will expand some pipelines from a port in the Baltic Sea to deliver oil, which is, you know, could, for example, come from the United States or from other countries and deliver that to these refineries and then do without the Russian deliveries through the pipeline. This was a bit more difficult, but there's a solution for this as well. So it is actually fair to say that Germany has become independent from Russian energy already. Mm -hmm. And I'm interested in your perspective on the Nord Stream pipelines, Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2, because there was quite a lot of criticism around the decision to build those. Obviously, Germany was very involved in that. In your evaluation, was that a reasonable decision based on the information available at the time? Or are those decisions that should never have been made? I think that it was not a reasonable decision. Um, and I was also always very critical of you know, these pipelines, especially Nord Stream 2. So it's not, not difficult for me to criticize it now, but it was not reasonable. It was in terms of energy security, it was naive. And I would stress that if we had opened up Nord Stream 2, which was obviously, I mean, it was going to happen without this war. Then a couple of years down the road, our dependency would have been even greater. And a situation like the gas cutoff now would have hit us much harder. You know, in terms of energy security, we were about to double down on Russian dependency. I get this question a lot. How could this decision have been made? Because it's so, you know, obviously dangerous and wrong to uh, put all eggs in one basket. And then this basket being Russia which had just annexed Crimea and was also 
constantly doing secret service operations in the EU. It was just obviously not a reliable partner. But there was a very strong combination of, on the one hand, sort of an ideology or hope that we could de-escalate the situation with Russia if we had closer trade relations. And at the same time, there was simply brutal lobbying and very close connections between the authorities responsible uh, for managing all of this, the industry, and then Russian gas companies like Nord Stream. And I mean, we, you know that the former German chancellor was working, was very heavily involved in this, but also other former officials were involved in this. And it was just like, it was a very powerful and influential group. And this is one of the reasons why this mistake was made in combination with other politicians being naive about what Russia was, you know, capable of doing. I think it's important to, to stress that I think even the most experienced Russia watchers, even those much more experienced than I am, did not believe that Russia would start this war because it was so mind-blowingly stupid and it was you know bound to fail and be a catastrophe for Russia so it you know it's I think it's not fair to say that they should have expected this war but they should have had some contingency plans and you know you you have to have scenarios yeah it was just that those who were actually would have been responsible for taking care of Germany's energy security did a very bad job I think this is clear now and this is also obviously a very you know, a controversial discussion in Germany, which is still ongoing because, of course, we are wondering how it could get to this and how, how we could be so wrong. The answer is not easy, but as I said, there were a lot of illusions at play in combination with very uh, significant lobbying efforts, and this basically led to the situation. Mm-hmm. And finally, what have you been thinking about these recent leaks which have been caused by some kind of explosions on the Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipelines. Obviously, we don't know that it was Russia. I mean, that's my guess. If I had to, you know, put $100 on a state actor being behind it, my $100 would be on Russia. Were you shocked that there's the possibility that a state actor would engage in this kind of sabotage? And, you know, how significant is this in terms of the way that we look at energy imports and the way that they can be weaponized by states against other states? So it was a very surprising development. And in the beginning, it was also quite puzzling because it is um, very unlikely that a non-state actor is behind us because it's a very complicated operation. And if we think about state actors, I have never considered it to be realistic that anybody in NATO, for example, would be doing this. This just does not make any sense. If we exclude all of these states where we think it doesn't make any sense, we always only end up with Russia. And with regards to Russia, it is also puzzling because up to now, we thought that they would you know, try to sort of divide a European societies by saying, oh, we could turn it back on you know, if you just lift some sanctions or if you just stop supporting Ukraine, you will have gas again. And now this, I mean, one of the pipes of the four uh, is still operational, but you know, obviously this is, it's a different strategy. So you know, strategy changed if Russia did this. So far, I, of course, I don't have any access to any information that prove that Russia is behind this, but I am also pretty certain that it is. This is also due to how Russian state officials and Russian media are dealing with this. 
creating all of these different conflicting narratives on what might have happened. Now we had the chief of the Russian Foreign Secret Service coming out um, saying there was a Western trace, that they have some information there. So, I mean, this all really reminds me of 2014 when we had MH17, the plane that was down from a Russian missile and some of these other many cases where like Street Power, the poisoning in Salisbury, when Russia tried to deny and deflect the blame. And this just feels very similar. I, I cannot prove it, but if Russia's behind this, this is how they would communicate about it. Now, of course, this only makes sense if it is some kind of warning shot against the West. So it's important for Russia that we also understand that they are behind it. So I, I expect that we will have some more clarity about this in the coming weeks. And I think that it's to, to some degree intended that we know that Russia is behind it because it is then creating the credible threat that Russia would do this to other pipelines as well. And the reaction that I got from colleagues or just friends who were observing this uh, was that, yeah, this is threatening. We already have many effects of the war, of course, but now there's infrastructure, which is basically, although it's not operational anymore, it was key for EU energy security and it's being attacked. And I think that this is a credible motive for Russia, uh, for Putin to send the signal that we shouldn't feel too safe. It is a signal that he is willing to escalate further, that he sees us as his enemy also in this war. And I think it's important that we read this correctly. And so I think it's intimidation. And it's some kind of intimidation which doesn't trigger uh, a NATO response because, um, you know, it was in international waters, the pipelines were not operational. So nobody's interested now in some kind of revenge against Russia here or reaction, but it still, you know, delivers the message. So this is why I believe it's very plausible that Russia did this, despite the fact that they spent so much money building it and that maybe at some point in the future, they could have expected to use it. But I mean, even that I think is very unlikely also given the energy transition, given the current sanctions. Mm -hmm. It's definitely a pretty unnerving development. Thank you so much, Yanis. I really enjoyed the conversation and I appreciate you being with me on the podcast today. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Mr. Smith for our theme music. Music.